The New York Times published a very interesting essay this week by Mark Tracy that offered a unique perspective on Cleveland's new favorite son, LeBron James. In the piece, Tracy made the case that LeBron's narrative journey is a classic Bildungsdramen. Thank you. A German word that means a novel of development or growth. In a Bildungsdramen, the hero chafes at the comfort and pleasures of home, believing that an adventure in a far-off land will give him spiritual fulfillment and a better life. In her years away, the hero gains knowledge, to be sure, but in time she also comes to realize that something far away is missing, and so the hero often returns home to find in that place what she's been looking for all along. LeBron James has told us he thought he would find joy and peace and satisfaction by creating a persona that was disconnected from his roots from his purpose, hence his decision to leave for Miami. But in time, despite two championships and eternal sunny weather, LeBron realized that to be at peace, he needed to be himself. A Northeast Ohio boy with special God-given gifts, with a dream of bringing a championship back home to his native land. Now, while all of us are not living on a stage as large as the one LeBron occupies, all of us are on a journey, a journey from the false self that we've spent much of our life creating and our true self that is a gift given from God. We are all the main character in our own Bildungstraumen, our own novel of transformation. In his book, New Seeds of Contemplation, Thomas Merton describes the false self that we spend so much of our lives building up. He describes the false self this way. Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self, he writes. This person is the person I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him or her My false self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality, outside of my life. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. Ultimately, he writes, the only way I can be myself is to become identified with God, in whom is hidden the reason and the fulfillment of my existence. Therefore, there is only one problem. There is only one problem on which all my existence, my peace, and my happiness depends. To discover myself in discovering God. As I said earlier, today's passage marks a turning point in the gospel story in Luke's version in that it provides the pivot point the turning point between Jesus' mission of teaching and preaching and healing in Galilee and his journey towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. And this turn from what he has done for the people to what he came to do for the people is made with the words, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is Luke's signal that the heart of Jesus' mission 
is about to commence, it's about to begin, and that all that has come before is simply the opening move in the revealing of God's coming kingdom. And right on the heels of this decision to set his face towards Jerusalem, Jesus encounters some resistance from a village of Samaritans who simply will not receive him because he has set his face to Jerusalem. And this rejection of him, this resistance to his message, angers and surprises two of his disciples so much, we're told, that they want to send fire down from heaven to destroy that Samaritan village. At the first sign of resistance, they want to wipe its source right off the map. This past week was amazing. My grandmother took my two boys downtown for the parade. Yeah, there's a grandma of the year. You couldn't have paid me to go. Anyway, it's been an amazing week. I, I'm not from here, but my mom grew up in Kent and Streetsboro. I, I've been coming to Ohio my whole life. I went to school in Ohio. It feels like home now, and it was so cool to see 1.3 million people get together, right, downtown and really only have a couple of foolish things happen. It was an amazing display of unity and hope and peace. So I don't want to put a damper on all that. But I'm going to put a damper on all that. (laughs) Because am I the only one that remembers what happened a little over five years ago? Have we all forgotten the decision, the decision that LeBron made to take his talents to South Beach? A decision that led some of you, I'm guessing, to burn your jerseys like many fans did, to tear down your LeBron fatheads off the wall. And didn't owner Dan Gilbert write this letter in the paper where he slammed LeBron? It's a hate-filled tirade that we all applauded. We may be happy now for the long, windy road that brought LeBron home a different person and brought us the long-awaited championship we've wanted for so many years. But we can't forget that when LeBron resisted our calls to stay and left and took a path I think he needed to take, we did everything we could to destroy him. At the first sign of resistance, we want to wipe the source of that resistance off the map. In his writings, Father Richard Rohr talks a lot. He's been talking a lot lately about the first and the second half of life. He believes that life is a journey from the first half of things to the second half of things, and the purpose of the first half and the second half of life are very different. In the first half of life, we are concerned, consumed with, really, surviving successfully. And we we do this. We survive successfully by establishing an identity, a persona, a a home, relationships, friends, community, security, a job, an identity. The needed virtues for this process, for this part of our journey, he argues, are all about self-control, self-fulfillment, as we try really hard to be the authors of our own salvation, our own journey of transformation. But in the second half of life, as we realize we aren't in control... (laughs) and our lives are part of a bigger narrative than just our own, the needed virtues for that second half are all about giving up the control we've held so tightly to the first half of our life. 
For 10 chapters, Jesus is in control. He is showing us time and time again just what he's capable of. And then he enters the second half of his story, the second half of his ministry, and he makes a strange move from displaying his power to letting it go. And the minute he does this, the minute he takes the path God has placed before him, he meets resistance. And the lesson he gives the disciples following their violent response to this resistance is a lesson we all need to hear. As they were going along the road, someone says to Jesus, hey, I'll follow you wherever you take me. And Jesus says to him, no, foxes have their holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, another, Jesus said, follow me. To someone, he says, follow me. And the man says, well, Lord, let me go home first and bury my father who just died. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go say goodbye to my family and my friends. Seems reasonable enough. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In these little teachings, I think Jesus is teaching us, reminding us that resistance in all its forms is a natural human response to the journey of faith. Resistance is a natural response to the journey from the false self we've been building up to the true self that God created us to be. Resistance is part of our journey of transformation. Which got me wondering. We've been living in this bubble here in Cleveland. It's been a happy week. (laughs) The world's bubble has not been so happy. But I wonder, is it possible that all the resistance we see in our world right now, all the pushback, all the anger, all the fear, is it possible that it's a natural, albeit at times tragic, response to God doing something, to God moving us closer to the world God intends? The Brexit, rising religious extremism, our polarizing political process, the proliferation of selfies, the friction between the haves and the have-nots, Orlando, Charleston, Baltimore, Syria. What if all of it is a response, the natural response to the inbreaking of God's Spirit? What if all of it is a natural response to us as a people, as a world, as a nation, as a church, as a city? What if all, all of it's a response to us becoming, slowly but surely, who God created us to be. After he did everything the people wanted him to do, preach, teach, and heal, Jesus knew it was time to do what the people needed him to do, and so he sets his face towards Jerusalem and began to teach them, show them how one journeys down the path of discovering oneself by discovering God. Leave all your things and follow me. Love your enemies. And do good to those who hate you. Forgive anyone who's wronged you. If someone slaps you, give them the other cheek. This is what he teaches us to do in the face of resistance. And ironically, every one of these teachings 
not only informs our response to resistance, they also stir up resistance in ourselves and in other people. Because resistance is the natural human response to being moved, taken from, broken down from that false self that is propped up by the illusions of wealth, power, and vengeance to that true self, that God-given self that finds its strength and purpose and courage and hope in God and God alone. We resist and God persists. This is the spiritual journey. We resist and God persists. This is the pattern of discipleship. We resist and God persists. This is the story of the good news. God's persistence is always followed by our resistance, and our resistance is always followed by God's life-changing grace, which is the only thing, in my experience, that can change us, transform us, move us, without shaming us and breaking us down. No matter what we do or how we respond, God is all in on us. God is all in on you. A well-known theologian who wrote many books that changed many lives had this recurring nightmare, a recurring dream. The dream was he dreamed that he was in a distant city, a place that was not his home, and as he's walking the streets of that distant city, he bumps into somebody he knew back in high school. In the dream, his old friend says to him, Henry, I haven't seen you in years. What have you done with your life? This question from his friend in the dream always felt like judgment to Henry. He'd done some good things in his life, but there'd also been some troubles and some real struggles. So when the old schoolmate in the dream would ask him, what have you done with your life, Henry wouldn't know what to say. He'd struggle to find the words, how to account for his life. And then he'd wake up panicked in a sweat. This happened for years. Then one night, by God's grace, he had another dream. He dreamed that he died and went to heaven. He was waiting outside the throne room for God, waiting to stand before the Almighty, shivering with fear. Henry just knew that God would come out of the room surrounded with smoke and fire, and that God would speak to him in this deep voice, saying, Henry, Henry, what have you done with your life? But in the dream, something else happened. As he's shaking in fear, the the throne room doors open and the room is flooded with light that spills over Henry. And from the room, he could hear God speaking to him in this gentle, kind, and gracious voice. Henry, it's so good to see you. I hear you had a rough trip, but I would love to see your slides. The minute Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, towards his rejection, he secured our salvation. Because in his willingness to respond to our resistance with grace, he made transformation possible, not only for us as individuals, but for this church, for the city, for our nation, and for our world. Resistance is a necessary step in the process of becoming who God created us to be. So don't fight it or seek to wipe it off the map. In fact, when you feel resistance, 
embrace it and rejoice in it. For where there is resistance in us or in other people, the grace of God, that power that changes lives, is never too far behind. Amen.